um, Bible reading comes from Exodus. It's in Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, and in my Bible it's entitled The Exodus. So Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the <coughs> Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There, that, sorry, there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had bought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. Thanks, Carl. Morning, everyone. We continue our theme, uh, working through Exodus, the first 20 chapters. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, again for the opportunity we have as your people to gather together. We acknowledge your goodness to us. We acknowledge that you are the sovereign God who is at work in our world, the God who has, in fact, been at work in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you stooped in mercy uh, to save, to redeem, to cleanse us and to adopt us into your forever family. Now, here we are, Lord, your children, your family gathered together, desiring to hear from you. Open our eyes and grant to us an understanding from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. There are lots of, uh, there are several key periods of miracles in the scriptures. It's an argument of cessationists, those people who don't believe they happen anymore, to argue there are three periods and that God operated during those three periods and he doesn't do them anymore, but they're wrong. <clears throat> so if you're a cessationist, repent. Um, there are periods or eras certainly of miracles in the Bible and to the uh, cessationists do not, don't acknowledge the very first one. What's the first period of miracles in the Bible? Creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's pretty miraculous, isn't it? So yes. Thank you. Then there is a second one, which is this one, which is Moses and all of the plagues and the wanderings over the next 40 years and the miracles that are associated with that. That happens in that period of time. And then there's occasionally a miracle here and there. The next great period is Elijah and Elisha. 
And then for the cessationists, the final one is Jesus and the apostles of the early church. And that's where miracles stop, they say. But the scripture teaches us that there's going to be another period of miracles. That just like through Exodus, the Lord sent many judgments. So the book of Revelation tells us there is going to be another period of God acting in judgment, this time not in the land, but on the globe. And there's going to be an antichrist empowered by Satan who will empower him to imitate and duplicate, counterfeit, some of God's miracles. Periods are at least five, as I've just outlined them for you, and we are looking this morning at particularly the second one. I encourage you this afternoon to take your Bibles and to read chapters 7 to 12. Read it carefully, but read it with some themes in mind and look for those themes and then the passage will sort of uh, gel together for you. There's a lot of information in those chapters, but it's a wonderful story about how terrific God is, what he is like. It also tells us a little bit about Pharaoh and what he's like. We're going to look at that this morning and also Moses and how God transformed, changed him and how God wants to do the same in our lives. The plagues, while there are 10 of them, fall into the first nine particularly, discounting the last one, the death of the firstborn and the introduction of the Passover. The front nine plagues fall into three sets of three. Notice the pattern. There is blood, frogs, gnats. Second lot is flies, livestock, boils. Third lot is hail, locust, darkness. The first two in each set are always announced. So blood and frogs, God sends Moses to Pharaoh. Often in the first one in each set, it's to the palace. Yeah, or to the, sorry, to the river. And in the second one in each set, it's to the palace. And the third lot in each of the three series is, it happens without warning. Interesting pattern. The first three plagues, the Egyptians seek to replicate, to duplicate it. They do for the first two, the blood and the frogs. And they tried to do the gnats or the little insects, whatever they were. Some Bibles say lice, but I'll call them gnats the NIV translation but they fail on the third and they in fact make a statement to Pharaoh this is the finger of God this is the finger of God we can't do this this is beyond our ability in the second uh, set um, there is a distinction made between Israel and Egypt I think it's there in all of them you need to read the text carefully because in the front three, it'll have Moses or the Lord saying that this, while it will happen everywhere, it's on your people, on the Egyptians. It doesn't talk about Israel. But from the, second one, the fourth one on in the second lot of three, the flies, God makes a very clear distinction. I'll make a separation between you and the people of Israel, the children of Israel, in the land of Goshen. That whatever's happening in Egypt is not happening in the land of Goshen. God protected them. Again, something that will be duplicated in the end times, that God will protect his people. In the first three plagues, it's Aaron's staff. In the second three, there is no mention of a staff. And in the last three, it's Moses' staff. I don't know if it's the same staff. It could be two different staffs. Or it could very well be the same staff that they just keep swapping backwards and forwards. You read the text and see what you come up with. One of the conclusions we get from these, ten, these nine, ten plagues is that it's not by chance. It's all planned. It's all designed. And it's all designed to reveal who God is and him to achieve his purposes in the world. 
It's no afterthought. It's not God reacting, having his effort or anything like that. It's part of his strategy. He said it was going to happen. He predicted it. And it reveals to us that he is the one who searches hearts. Before we have a very quick look at some of the plagues, I want to read to you from God's word. And I think I'm going to read. I've forgotten. Seven verse one. Verse 8. I don't have verse 8, so I'll start from verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men, the sorcerers, the Egyptian magicians, also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each of them threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Passage then goes on, you won't have this, but then says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. One of the common questions of these miracles happens about, what about Pharaoh's heart and God hardening his heart? And Did Pharaoh not have a choice or a chance Well, if you read it very carefully, you'll discover something amazing. For the very first five plagues, it records, and Pharaoh hardened his heart five times. And it's only then on the one after that, two or three after that, that it says, and the Lord hardened his heart. But he already had it it as in the process of hardening, and God just said, all right, you've made your choice. You will stay that way. God is the judge. And at the end of time, he will do exactly the same thing. We make our choice in life, in time, to either follow Jesus or to not. And at the end of time, there is an appearing, a day of reckoning. And then God will say, you chose to rebel against me. That's what it'll be like now forever. God will harden the hearts of the unbelievers. It'll be impossible for them to change their wills or their way. And the positive side of that is, for those of us who are believers, at the end of time, it'll be impossible for us to choose to rebel against God in eternity too. If you've ever wondered about that, if we get to heaven, what happens if we do it again? Well, you won't do it again. It won't be possible for you. God will keep you and save you and prevent all of that happening. As you read through the plagues, it's helpful to read them slowly, pen in hand, and to imagine what it was like. It's very easy just to read them through, and they are familiar to us. There are certainly many things we don't understand, but you'll get the picture. So read it with some imagination. Let's just look reasonably quickly through these, uh, the plagues. The first one is about the water turning to blood. The wells in Egypt were often contaminated and so the Nile became a major source of fresh water supply for them. So when God attacked the Nile, he was attacking the very heart of Egypt. This is God's first blow in the bout with Pharaoh and it's a body punch. The fish, which were part of the staple diet of the Egyptians, perished. And the water became blood, not just in the Nile, but everywhere. Bathing, cooking, cleaning, laundry, drinking, it all went. For seven days, apparently, this lasted. Imagine not being able to drink fresh water for seven days. In fact, the passage says to us that they actually had to go along the edge of the Nile and dig down into the sand to try to get the water through there. Imagine the supermarkets being closed for a long weekend. There's sheer panic even then. Imagine it closed for a week. 
I think for most of us, at the end of the very first plague, you'd say, I'm done. The Lord is God. Let him have what he wants to do. Not Pharaoh. Pharaoh's response is very simply to turn around, to go back into the palace. Unresponsive. Unimpressed. Of course, the magicians duplicated it. Now, here is an insight into Satan and his ways. Every bit of water in the land, all of Nile is blood. It's in the bowls, it's in the sinks, it's in the baths, the garden hoses are full of blood, everything's got blood in it. And somehow, somewhere, the magicians get, blood, get water. What do they choose to do with it? Turn it into blood. See, that's what Satan can do. He can duplicate and imitate, but he always does it with a view to making things worse. He never makes things better. And he can't reverse it. He can just mess it up. He can't fix it up. Second one, frogs. Frogs were very important to the ancient Egyptian. In fact, the sound of frogs along the Nile was a blessing for them because it meant the Nile had flooded, that it had deposited all of its lovely alluvial soil and silt and stuff. And as the flood retreated, then it left pockets and puddles and ponds of, uh, with frogs in it making croaking and it was the sound of music to the Egyptians because it meant prosperity it meant um, a harvest that was to come but this this bird this blessing was about to be turned to a burden because there are frogs everywhere for somebody who came from New South Wales and I've been up here about 15 years or so when I first arrived here there were frogs everywhere I don't see them as much as I used to you still see them. The very first night that I was up here, be part of the process of uh, the pastoral search committee, I uh, spent some time with Murray Wood. And Murray used to tell me what he used to do at night. Every night. He took a golf club, a 9-9, and went out to the back lawn and used toads as golf balls. That's how prevalent they were. Well, you haven't seen anything like this plague. There were frogs everywhere. Wall-to-wall frogs. I was going to say toads. In cupboards, in the sink, in the closet, in the beds. When you got up during the night to go to the toilet, you'd trot on them as you walked down the hallway. You'd brush them off the land, you'd sit down, and then they'd jump on your lap. Frogs everywhere. God sent them... You one? You should have had a cat. God sent a message. Message was not received. Remarkably, and God does this consistently all through this, Pharaoh says, okay, okay, I give in. Can you please take the frogs away? And God does. It's remarkable in this instance. Pharaoh, uh, Moses, uh, Pharaoh gets Moses to come to him. So can you please take them away? And Moses says, okay, 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 but you have the honour of choosing. When would you like the frogs to go? Guess what he says? What would you say? He says, tomorrow. Caused one pastor to write a sermon called One More Night with the Frogs. <laughs> and then he thought about it and he realised that same attitude is also in us often. When God convicts us, when God does something in our life, when he corrects us or we become aware that something's, we've got to start something or we've got to stop something or whatever it is, we have to be doing something that we're not doing, we often say, I need to do that tomorrow. 
The scripture says today is the day. If you hear his voice, do it today. Don't delay it. Don't put it off. That's one of Satan's subtle little ploys. Well, that's the frogs. And the frogs uh, came and the frogs went. It's one of the gods of Egypt. <clears throat> the, second, the third one uh, in chapter 8 is now gnats. This one, third in the first series, comes without warning and without announcements and just simply intolerable. If you've been walking through the bush at any point or even, you know, riding a bike or something like that, you may have had this experience perhaps down on the beach. Certainly I've had an experience like this where you're going through and suddenly there is this cloud, this swarm of little dark critters and they go everywhere and you do your best to get rid of them. Have had that sort of experience? Now, the gnats were something like that. They were biting, stinging small insects. They'd go up your nose, they'd go in your ears. They'd be in your hair, down your neck, in your eyes, in your mouth. But Pharaoh's heart was not softened. The magicians came and they tried to do the same, which in one sense should have been the easiest because there's so many of them around. But they couldn't do it. And in fact, they make the statement, this is the finger of God. The finger of God. That caused me to stop and think. These magicians, in the process of what God is doing, it's... Their heart's being knocked on as well. And that phrase, the finger of God, is going to be is used again a couple of times, about four times in the scriptures. It's the finger of God that writes on stone tablets, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the finger of God that appears on the wall in Belshazzar's house, palace. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. It's the finger of God when Jesus bends down and writes in the stand. And we don't know what he wrote. But it's in the context when he said, those who were without sin, let them cast the first stone. And Jesus refers to the finger of God. If I cast out Satan by the finger of God, the finger of God, the hand of God or the arm of God talks about his strength, but the finger of God is a bit like Psalm 8 says, he created the heavens, are the work of his fingers. It's almost like it's effortless for him. The finger of God either points at you in judgment or the finger of God summons you for forgiveness and for salvation, and the choice is ours. The second series of plagues begins with the flies. We have flies here in Australia, but not like this. The Hebrew text is a little bit ambiguous, and it's probably far more than flies. It talks more like a mixture of insects, flying beetles, fleas, Ticks, chiggers, bees, including flies, trillions of them, everywhere, except in Goshen, separated. You ever been in a sandstorm? I've been in a couple of those in my life. The one I remember the most was when I was a kid, probably because I was small and young and it made a big impression on me. And mum and dad had locked every door and closed every window and put towels and things under the doors and everything else and the sand still got in. You've had that experience? Well, imagine that within these insects. Not sand, but with the insects. They were everywhere. It was oppressive, it was severe, intense. Pharaoh's response? Unyielding. What happens next? Well, the domestic animals get some sort of disease and they die. Horses, donkeys, camels... Sheep, goats, bulls and cows, dead, bloated carcasses in the paddocks, in the backyard, in the streets, dead animals everywhere. 
God had struck the Nile and that got rid of the fish or delayed that. Now God strikes the red meat and the milk industries. Pharaoh, in fact, investigates because he'd been told that your animals are going to die, but the ones in Goshen weren't. And the scripture says he went and investigated and he saw that not one animal of the Hebrews got the disease or died. Not one. Same song, fifth verse, Pharaoh hardens his heart. No impact. It's just not relevant to him. He was a very stubborn individual. Well, what else could possibly go wrong? Well, in chapter 9, we have boils, the third of the second series, number 6. Moses is instructed to take soot from a furnace or a kiln to throw it into the air, and that then turns into this boil-inducing substance. These inflamed eruptions on people's skin and pustules, blisters and ulcers and pus leaking out. It was painful. You couldn't sit down, you couldn't lie down, you couldn't walk, you couldn't do anything without pain. And even the magicians got this one, chapter 9, verse 11. The very last thing you want to do when you have a boil, because they are excruciatingly painful, is to be touched. So guess what's next? Hail. Hail comes, it's number seven, and it strips the bark off the trees. It even shatters the smaller trees, the scripture says. It dented chariot wheels. It did all sorts of things, but not in Goshen. Separated, clear skies. Back in 1995 in Georgia, in uh, the United States, in January of 95, they had this massive supercell and these very large, the size of cricket balls or softballs, so hail, pelted down, did a lot of destruction. You know, the scripture says there's another hailstorm coming too at the end of time, except it's going to be massive ones, 100 pounders. Hail, destructive. God working through nature to demonstrate his attitude to sin and to rebellion. It nearly cracks uh, Pharaoh's heart open. He nearly repented, but only temporarily. He does say in verse 27, I've sinned. This time I've sinned. This is the seventh time that he sinned. Moses didn't bite, but he does agree to help out. He goes and prays. The hail stops and they are relieved. Then comes the locusts who were just covered everywhere like a grasshopper plague and it's just drenched with blackness everywhere. No spare space. A group of investigators uh, one time went to Africa and they uh, put themselves in the path of an oncoming locust uh, epidemic invasion. And they make this statement that it sounded like the coming of a 747. Such was the noise and the volume of these locusts coming. Result? Pharaoh doesn't repent. Just wants to get rid of it. And then there is this, number nine, is this unspeakable darkness. Sudden and without warning. Ink black darkness. Quite a few years ago, we took the kids to Broken Hill, and outside of Broken Hill is a little town, I think it's called Silverton. And you can go on a mine, sh you get down a mine shaft in Silverton on a tour. You put the gear on and everything else, and you've got a lamp, a light at the front of your helmet. And you go down, and through a certain point, then the guide will tell you to gather you around in a part in the cave, and then he'll say, now turn your lights off. When you turn the lights off, it is absolute, pure darkness. You can't see anything. And therefore, you don't want to move because you don't know what's going on. 
Well, the Egyptians put up with that for three days. Three days of pure darkness. God snuffed the light out. And who did the Egyptians worship? Well, the sun god, the stars, the moon. In all of these instances, God was demonstrating that the gods of Egypt were ineffective, were false. They were not to be relied upon, but he was the true and living God. In fact, if we ask the question, why did the Lord do this? As you read through this, here are about seven verses. In chapter 7, verse 17, the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10, So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22, So you will know the Lord, that I, the Lord, am in this land, that I am present. Chapter 9, verse 14, So that you may know that there is no one like me in all of the earth. And then chapter 9 and verse 15. This is a remarkable statement. This is God speaking to Pharaoh. For by now I could have stretched out my head and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. That's what God says to him. I could have got rid of you like that, but I haven't. Because there's a purpose. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God was achieving his purposes even though Pharaoh was rebelling. And then over to chapter 9 and verse uh, 29. The thunder will stop and there'll be no more hail, so you will know that the earth is the Lord's. And then finally, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh. I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials so that, one, I may perform these signs of mine among them, and two, so that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. Why did God do all of this? In order to reveal himself to people that he is the true and living God, that he is to be feared and he is to be obeyed. As you read through, look for Pharaoh's responses, how not only did he harden his heart and refuse to listen, but he even gets to a point where he compromises with Moses. He says, all right, look, you can go. Uh, listen, you, you, you can go in the land, don't go out of the land. Uh, all right, well, you can go, but if you're going to go out of the land, don't go too far. Uh, all right, you can go, but... Uh, the men can go. Tell the women and kids to stay. Um, the men and the women and the kids can go, but let the animals stay. He keeps trying to compromise all the way down the line until right at the very end, on the death of the firstborn, he's, he finally says, get out. I've had enough. Take your flocks. Oh, and bless me. That's what he says to Moses right at the end. Get out. Had enough. Uh, could you pray for me, please? Bless me. Pharaoh was a man who resisted God's hand and plan. He ignored God's clear revelations and judgments. And that's what sin does to people. What sin did to Pharaoh is what it will do to us. Sin can harden us, harden our responsiveness. The longer we resist God and his will and listening to his voice, then the louder he has to speak to us. That's exactly what happens in this instance. Pharaoh was a man who not only saw clear evidence of God's hand, 
but he refused to acknowledge it or respond to it. Very sad. God showed Pharaoh his gods were completely false and ineffective. And Pharaoh made his own choices and chose to rebel. Pharaoh's responses of those compromises as he went, as you go through the story, reminds me of our experience as we follow the Lord Jesus. That Satan, like Pharaoh, will say, well, okay, do that, but not this. Do that, but not this. Let me step you through five quick steps. Maybe you're on the way of becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you're not there yet. Then I'm pretty confident Satan will be whispering to you or suggesting to you or planning it in your mind. Listen. How about you just stay in the world, keep your life secular the way you are, and don't believe in God? Second one. Oh, all right, if you're going to believe in God, by all means be religious, be spiritual if you want. But don't become one of those evangelical narrow people who think that salvation is only through Jesus. Believe in God, just stay away from Jesus. Third. Oh, all right, if you're going to believe and receive Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, just don't go too far. Don't be overcommitted. Don't be fully passionate. Number four. Well, if you're going to be full on for Jesus, if you're going to be fully, really committed to him and passionate about serving and following him, don't force it on the kids. Let the kids make their own choice when they're old enough to grow up. And then we have to decide ourselves, don't we? We decide. When we decide that we'll worship and serve as a family, when we'll be all out to following the Lord Jesus, even then Satan still comes and whispers. Well, don't tithe, don't give, don't spend too much time serving Jesus. Don't evangelise. It's okay if you're doing what you want to do. And the Lord Jesus says to us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then, of course, the final plague, the death of the firstborn, which is justice being demonstrated because Pharaoh had sought to kill Israel's firstborn and now God was... Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And the firstborn throughout the land, there was massive weeping and wailing. But God's people who were obedient to him were protected because he said, take a lamb, go into your rooms, slay the lamb, put blood on the door. And when the angel of death passes through the lamb with the death of the firstborn, you will be protected. Now take note. If you were there, if you imagined it, you would hear at about midnight the cries and the wails of neighbours who were losing their firstborn. And you may have become anxious, you may get worried, you may become uncertain and doubtful. Is it going to happen to us? Is it going to happen to us? It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's the fact of blood on the door, God would pass over you. It's the fact of the blood the substitution of the lamb in your place. So too for us as we follow the Lord Jesus, as we are in him, part of him, his blood has fully washed away and cleansed us of the penalty of our sin. It doesn't matter if we're anxious or doubtful or worried about it or if we have doubts about it. The reality is if you are in Christ, you are in Christ regardless of how you feel about it. Blood on the door. I wonder if that's your experience. Have you done that with the Lord Jesus? 
let me hasten to an end. Let me just finish with talking about God. I was going to say some things about Moses, but he was a guy who was just quickly radically transformed, who became fully obedient because he met God. Because he met God. It's remarkable. We can have exactly the same experience. Life transformed and changed, being confident and trusting because God is a God who keeps his word. And he's looking for people like Moses who will just do what he says available. And this passage, of course, tells us a whole lot about the true and living God. He's the God who punishes. He's the God who is just, who is a judge, who is sovereign, who is awesome in power, that he can use the forces of nature. He can do it directly himself. He is the God who rules this world. The nations may ignore him, even rage and rebellion against him. But he remains supreme, sovereign, over all the governments of men. And that ought to steady us and give us um, confidence and trust. The governments of this world are not in control. God is. And he is working his purposes out. This same God is our Father, who sent his Son and his Spirit. He is the one who is willing to deliver and to save This supreme God is the one who wants to enter into an intimate relationship with each one of us, a personal God, who looks on us in mercy. And he is the God who has the ability to perform what he has promised. He is faithful, he is reliable. One of the wonderful themes through this uh, passage of scripture is, not only did Moses listen to God and do exactly what he says, but the Lord listened to Moses. Moses would go out from Pharaoh's presence and he would raise his hands to heaven and he would say, Lord, stop the hail, and the hail would stop. Lord, remove the frogs, and they all died. Lord, get rid of the locusts, and God changes the direction of the wind, and they're gone. God listens to us as we listen to him and as we cooperate with him and the working out of his purposes in the world. It's a passage filled with lots of lessons for us, but primarily directs us to keep our eyes on God and to be cooperating with him. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, continue to work your purposes out in our lives personally, in our families, in the life of our church, but also in our city and nation. We ask, Lord, that you might find us like Moses, uh, though perhaps hesitant Please empower us, call us, just like you called Moses. Forgive us and deliver us from ever being like Pharaoh and resistant to what you're wanting to do. Your judgments should have humbled him, instead they hardened him. Lord, may the circumstances of our life likewise drive us to you in humility. Lord, may your will be done in each of our lives, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.